Hello again, and thanks for listening to the second podcast of the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide. This edition of IPG will provide 36 minutes of approved ethics MCLE self-study Today, we're going to be covering a case called People versus Lewis. It's a case ostensibly with a good result, but it comes with some dicta that's particularly hard to swallow. The case involves the question of a prosecutor's discovery obligation when it comes to police officers who participated in the investigation of the case, but who the prosecutor has decided not to call because the officer has later developed his or her own criminal problems. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the case has some disturbing dicta, in particular, some criticism of the prosecution, and even more particularly, criticism of Chief Assistant District Attorney of the Contra Costa County District Attorney's Office, Doug Master. Now, in light of that criticism, I've invited Doug to join me for this podcast to discuss the case and explain what really went down. As you're about to find out, the appellate decision has painted a somewhat unfair picture of the prosecution and the motivations of the prosecutors. Doug, thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. Doug, why don't you take us back to that fateful night in November of 2012, when this case first arose, and the investigating officer, or the arresting officer, Officer Switzer, first came into contact with the defendant in the case, Mr. Lewis. Okay, this is what we know from Officer Switzer's preliminary hearing testimony. He was on patrol in his patrol car in the city of Concord. He sees the defendant driving a car. He runs the plates. Turns out the car is stolen. He waits for backup to arrive, and then he hits his overhead emergency lights. The defendant doesn't yield, but he accelerates, speeds, blows several stop signs. Officer Switzer and other officers pursue him in their patrol cars. Now, at least twice during the pursuit, the defendant opens his door and sticks his foot out as if he's going to run. On each of these occasions, Officer Switzer, who was a canine officer, gets on his PA system and says something to the effect of, if you run, I'm going to send my dog. I'm going to send my dog, and you're going to get bit. Each time, and it closes car door and accelerates. Eventually, the defendant comes to an abrupt stop, bails on foot. Officer Switzer again warns the defendant over the PA system that he should stop or else he would get bit. The defendant takes no heed, continues running. He's run to ground. Turns out the car has been stolen. License plates have been switched. Okay, so some bad behavior on the part of the defendant. What does the defendant end up getting charged with? Well, we charge them with uh, vehicle theft under Section 10851 and uh, driving with wanton or willful disregard in violation of Section 2800.2 of the vehicle code. Now, you mentioned earlier that the new accounting of the facts stems from the preliminary examination testimony. When was the preliminary examination held? in relation to when the crime occurred back in November of 2012. The prelim was held within just a few weeks of the Crimes Commission. 
Okay, presumably the thing gets held to answer, but how long does the case sit around before trial starts? Uh, well over a year, probably about a year and a half. The case doesn't go to trial until March of 2014. Now, just as a little bit of background, prior even to the preliminary examination, was the defendant provided with the names and witnesses that the prosecution originally anticipated calling at trial? Absolutely. Our standard practice in Contra Costa, and I believe its practice is mirrored up and down the state, is when we file the felony complaint, we provide the defense with a discovery packet that contained the pertinent discovery had Officer Lewis's name as well as the employer of the Concord Police Department. And in fact, we sent out a cover letter with our discovery packet referencing that we're providing this discovery in compliance with Penal Code Section 1054.1. Now, while this case against Lewis's pen, after the criminal examination uh, occurred but before trial, did circumstances uh, take, let's call it an unfortunate turn when it came to Officer Switzer, the arresting officer. Yes, he became addicted to prescription painkillers at some point in the latter part of the following year, 2013. And so he committed uh, a couple of burglaries. What he would do would be he would abuse his badge, he would convince elderly people to let him go upstairs and check their prescription medications under the assertion that he was checking for recent burglary of prescription meds, and he himself would uh, then take some of their prescription meds at that point. He was eventually, this was eventually discovered. Now, when it was eventually discovered, who was participating in the investigation of Officer Switzer? Did your officer office get involved in that? Yes, at the request of the Concord Police Department, our office conducted an independent investigation of Officer Switzer's burglary of prescription painkillers. Now, when did this information concerning Officer Switzer first come on your radar or the radar of the trial attorney who, who handled this case? It came on our radar in early March of 2014, and then the case was tried later that month. Okay, so in early March of, of 2014, what did you learn? I mean, how did you even find out that there was this investigation going on? Had the trial prosecutor find out that there might be some problem with Officer Switzer's testimony? Well, I was made aware of it by our chief investigator, uh, Chief Mulligan, who was conducting our investigation. And I know that our trial prosecutor learned of it shortly thereafter. Okay, so what happened when the trial prosecutor subpoenaed Officer Switzer in anticipation of trial? At some point, we got a return subpoena from the Concord Police Department informing us that he was unavailable, that he was on administrative leave. At that point, did you know what the basis was to support that administrative leave? When this issue was brought to my attention by the trial prosecutor, I was aware that we were investigating Officer Switzer for residential burglaries. Did you know that Officer Switzer at that juncture was going to testify in any case? I knew that we had subpoenaed Officer Switzer for trial in the Lewis matter. I knew that we were not going to be calling Officer Switzer in that trial, if at all possible. I consulted with my trial prosecutor and 
we agreed that it would be possible to cobble together a case at trial against the defendant where we went without Officer Switzer's testimony and relied upon the testimony of the backup officers as well as the victim of the car theft. Now, why did you make that decision? Why did you decide to go forward without calling Officer Switzer as a witness? Well, my chief of inspectors had requested that we keep the details of the investigation confidential. It's still ongoing at that point. I knew that if we had to testify, excuse me, I knew that if we had to call Officer Switzer as a witness, we would have to disclose this information under Brady, but we determined that we could go without Officer Switzer at trial and satisfy Brady in that manner. Okay. Now, one of the things that the appellate court ultimately criticized the prosecution for was waiting until the last day to make that call. Why did you wait until the last minute to decide not to call this officer at the trial of defendant Lewis? I don't know that we waited until the last minute not to call Officer Switzer. We had reached that determination a couple days before trial. I think the Court of Appeal was critical of the notion that we did not inform the defense until we got into the trial department that we intended to prove the case without calling Officer Switzer as a witness. I didn't see anything in the criminal discovery statute that required us to call down our witness list and alert the defense that a witness we had earlier previously anticipated, we reasonably anticipated he was going to testify. We had no obligation to notify the defense of that. That appeared to me to be the type of work product, core work product, that the criminal discovery statute protects from disclosure, and we had already complied with our obligation under 1054.1 to provide the defense with the name and address of Officer Switzer. We did that when we filed the accusatory pleading back in lower court. So at the time when you actually reasonably anticipated calling Officer as a witness, you had provided that name. The only thing that was not provided prior to trial was your decision not to call him once you learned of this criminal activity on the part of Officer Switzer. Correct. We didn't notify the defendant in advance of trial that we had decided not to call Officer Switzer as a witness, and we didn't do so because the criminal discovery imposes no such obligation on the prosecution. Now, what happened when the trial prosecutor goes into court and tells the defense attorney that they're not planning to call Officer Switzer as a witness? Well, the defense attorney complained, and shortly thereafter, he brought a mid-trial discovery motion seeking all impeachment evidence, all Brady evidence related to Officer Switzer. Now, at the trial, did the prosecutor rely in any way on the testimony of Officer Switzer at the preliminary examination, or was any statements of Officer Switzer offered at the trial for the truth of the matter? No, not by the prosecution, nor by the defense. The prosecution at trial did not offer testimony from Officer Switzer, nor did we offer his out-of-court statements as a hearsay declarant for the truth of the matter asserted. So how was the case proved? How did you go about proving the trial? Well, again, we called the other officers who were involved in the hot pursuit, and we called the 
victim of the auto theft who established that the car had been altered from the time when it had been stolen to the time when it was discovered and recovered. Okay, so you were able to make the case prove the unreasonable doubt without ever having to rely on anything Officer Switzer said. Correct. Now, according to the opinion, the defense tried to subpoena the officer on the third day of the trial, uh, but was told the officer was on administrative leave. What did the defense do when they learned that this guy was on administrative leave? Well, they didn't seek a continuance. They didn't make further efforts to personally hand him a subpoena. What they did do was bring that mid-trial motion for discovery. And what was the defense theory for why information impeaching an officer would be either favorable or exculpatory or material evidence at a trial where Officer Switzer was not going to be testified? Honestly, Jeff, their theory for admissibility, their theory for entitlement to this type of discovery was relatively incomprehensible mid-trial. We, we simply couldn't decipher their theory of relevance or materiality or justification. Uh, eventually, at the motion for new trial... And we're, we're, we're jumping ahead in time, but you're just giving this... Sure. Uh, uh, by way of explanation. The best I can figure, they felt that whatever we had on Officer Switzer, and they were speculating at the time, would support their theory, which they offered when the defendant testified, that it would support his alleged statement, which he attributed to Officer Switzer for non-hearsay purposes, for the effect it had upon him, he alleged that Officer Switzer said initially, pull over, I'm going to release the dog, and he is going to bite you. And based upon that alleged statement, the defense claimed that's why he fled, and in doing so, he did so without the wanton and unreasonable disregard for human safety that was a necessary element of our case. All right, so let me get this straight. The, de the defense argument and their, their theory of the case was that the officer didn't threaten to sit the dog on the defendant unless the, the defendant stopped. Their theory was the officer simply said, you know, pull over, I'm going to release the dog, and he's going to bite you. In other words, it wasn't like a conditional threat. The idea was this officer somehow just pulled in behind the defendant, they're both in their cars, and the officer says, I'm going to release the dog. Essentially, if you pull over, you're going to get bit. That's correct. Their theory was predicated on an unconditional excessive use of canine force. Okay, so uh, somewhat of an uh, unusual theory. Uh, so what did the trial court rule then, in light of this theory, on the defense request for the information regarding Officer Switzer at, at the time of trial? Well, mid-trial, the trial court denied the defendant's discovery request for at least two reasons. Number one, uh, the defendant hadn't sought this type of information via Pitchot's motion pre-trial. And number two, the trial court relied upon the fact that Officer Switzer's credibility wasn't going to be at issue 
under the defense theory and certainly not under the prosecution theory. Uh, and for that reason, it denied disclosure. I think it's important to note that we went into that trial department and when this became an issue, we begged the trial court to review our investigatory file of Officer Switzer in camera because I was convinced that we had no discovery obligations. Um, but I, I had no problem with letting the court review that material in camera to confirm that, and the trial court refused our request to review this material now during that, the trial. That, that aspect of what occurred never made it into the court of appeal. No. That, that, they ignored the fact that you actually were wanted to have the judge or would have liked to have the judge take a look at the information and make or confirm the call that you had already made that this information could not be material or exculpatory. Correct. Okay, so the trial court rules without looking at the items or the information that you had. And then after the trial occurs, and there's conviction in this case, uh, do you ever end up charging Officer Switzer with the various crimes that have been, have been investigated earlier? Yes. Within two weeks of the trial, we charged Officer Switzer in a felony complaint with multiple counts of burglary, a count of financial elder abuse, and a count of obtaining controlled substances by fraud. He pled uh, to those charges uh, within a month. So this information then comes to the attention of the defense attorney in the case. And what do they do once they learn that Officer Switzer had been charged and been convicted of these offenses. They filed a motion for new trial and they polished up their theory of relevance and justification and they argued that this evidence would have supported the defense claim that he fled not with a wanton disregard for the safety of others, but rather out of fear of an unconditional threat of canine force by Officer Switzer. Well, it's questionable whether or not, even assuming you believe everything the defendant said, if that would have provided defense. But did the trial court find that the evidence should have been disclosed once it became revealed that the officer, Switzer, had been charged and convicted of his various offenses? That's subject to some interpretation. What the trial court uh, ruled was that the evidence wasn't material, it wasn't favorable and that no Brady violation had occurred. So, the case goes up on appeal, and what does the defendant argue on appeal? Uh, he argues that this evidence, that Officer Switzer had been addicted to painkillers and he supported his habit through burglaries, uh, was favorable to his defense and material to his innocence, and that a Brady violation had occurred. Okay, so, in general, in order for a process violation to occur pursuant to Brody versus Maryland. There's got to be three things that must be shown. The state has to have been shown to have withheld evidence, whether that was intentional or not. Uh, the evidence at issue has to be favorable to the defendant, either because it's exculpatory or because it impeaches uh, prosecution witness. And the evidence has to be material. And for purposes of Brady, whether or not evidence is material turns on whether or not, whether had it been disclosed, there's a reasonable probability disclosure might have resulted in Did the appellate court find that there was a violation of 
due process in this case? No, it found no due process violation, no Brady violation, and it ruled that the evidence of Officer Schwartz's misconduct was immaterial to the guilt of the defendant. Well, he did say the conduct that Officer Schwartz engaged in was egregious. I think we could all agree with that. Why did they find that it wasn't material to the, to the trial? Uh, for a number of reasons, and uh, they relied in a large part upon the trial court's rulings and factual findings. Uh, first, even if this undisclosed evidence could have supported the defendant's claim, it's questionable whether that would have constituted a viable defense to the charge, since there was ample evidence that the jury could have relied on to conclude that, fearful or not, defendants still drove with willful or wanton disregard for the safety of others. Secondly, even if the defendant somehow could have introduced at trial Officer Switzer's testimony from the preliminary hearing, and this is what the defense had argued at the motion for new trial, that this is what they had wanted to do, uh, the jury would have heard that prelim testimony, would have heard that Officer Switzer had testified before he became addicted to narcotics, that he'd warned the defendant that the dog would be released only if the defendant tried to run, and this testimony would have given the jury more and not less reason to convict. Third reason was that even if this evidence related to Switzer's misconduct uh, somehow would have damaged his credibility so badly, uh, Switzer's preliminary hearing testimony was consistent with the other officer's testimony at trial. And finally, there was a factual finding from the trial court below that the defendant's testimony was not credible, and the Court of Appeal echoed that, pointing out that the defendant could simply have stayed in his car and been safe from excessive canine force without putting pedal to the metal and fleeing with wanton and willful disregard. Okay, well that, the gist of this whole thing is consistent with a long line of cases, including cases from the California Supreme Court, indicating that when a witness does not testify, failure to provide evidence that's relevant only to impeach the witness cannot be a Brady violation. Uh, presumably, the Lewis Court agreed with this basic principle, but did they agree with it in full? Well, they agreed with the principle, but they left open the door to the possibility that some future case, some future fact pattern, some future set of litigants might be able to establish a Brady violation when the prosecutor withholds evidence of misconduct by an arresting officer who doesn't testify at trial. Well, Doug, you can certainly imagine circumstances where a non-testifying officer's misconduct is relevant for some reason other than to impeach the officer's credibility. So, for example, let's say you have a prosecution for resisting arrest or battery on an officer. Evidence of that arresting officer's tendency to violence, including specific incidents of excessive force, that might be relevant at trial, probably would be relevant at trial, even if the arresting officer doesn't testify. When the only relevance of the evidence at trial is to impeach the officer, then it seems like non-disclosure of the evidence could never be considered material if the officer doesn't testify. Even though the Court of Appeal left open the possibility that it might be somehow relevant or favorable, they didn't specify any type of situation where it would be correct. 
No, the Court of Appeal didn't give any such specific example, and in their dicta as to some of these other issues, they were relatively sparse with their analysis. Okay, so that's the basic holding of the case. And if the court had stopped there, there probably would not be anything controversial about this case. But they went on, and they went on to provide some dicta. And I want to talk a little bit about that dicta now. Namely, the court's conclusion that the evidence should still have been disclosed under the prosecutor's statutory or ethical obligation to do so, even though there might not have been a Brady violation. What in, what in dicta did the court say about why you had a duty to turn over this evidence? Well, in the court's dicta, it argued that Penal Code Section 1054.1 Subdivision E requires the prosecution under the criminal discovery statute to disclose exculpatory evidence without the qualifier of material and exculpatory evidence. And so the Court of Appeal opined that there somehow had been an obligation to turn over this evidence for that reason. The Court of Appeal also took issue with what it appeared to have perceived as having been the prosecution in the Court of Appeal's mind waltzing in on the first day of trial and slapping down a witness list for the first time, showing that Officer Switzer was not on it. The Court of Appeal seems to have operated in ignorance of the fact that we had complied with 1054.1 the time we filed our felony complaint. Let's talk about that aspect of the dicta a little bit later. What I want to cover now is under what theory could they possibly have come up with that this information was relevant in the case? I mean, it would be questionable whether or not you could have even have introduced Switzer's testimony. I mean, at the time, he would have had a fifth amendment. He couldn't have been called to testify in any event. But how would the defense have used this misconduct in a relevant fashion? After all, even if you assume for a second, you could only assume this for a second because it's so far-fetched, that the officer's misconduct 18 months or a year after the original offense involving defendant Lucas, that this officer's conduct in engaging in burglaries and becoming addicted to drugs had any bearing on how he conducted himself a year earlier when he was chasing the defendant. Even if you could somehow assume that that had some sort of relevance, the relevance would be that it would show a bad character on the part of the officer. In other words, the defense theory, the defense theory of relevance would have to be, okay, well, this officer is a bad person, and because he's a bad person, therefore, he engaged in the use of excessive canine force. But we know from a long line of cases that you don't get to impeach someone's character in this general fashion. The character that is being impeached has to be the character at issue. So the character at issue, even under defendant's theory of the case, is simply that this officer 
uses excessive canine force. But how does his character for using drugs or engaging in burglary, burglaries a year later, that's a completely different type of character. It would have been totally inappropriate for the, for the defense to have been allowed to do that. And if that's true, how could this information possibly be considered exculpatory? Well, the Court of Appeal didn't answer any of these questions, and it didn't engage in any of them. The analysis that you just mentioned, Jeff, it didn't address the fact that a propensity to commit burglaries in 2014 or the fact that the defendant was, excuse me, the fact that Officer Switzer was addicted to prescription painkillers in 2014 was inadmissible and irrelevant and didn't shed light on any propensity to engage in excessive canine force two years earlier. Um, so there was, there was no analysis, there was no relevance analysis, there was no admissibility analysis by the Court of Appeal in its dicta. It simply opined that it, in its mind, apparently, uh, that this evidence might have been exculpatory under some type of theory I still cannot decipher. Uh, however, the Court of Appeal also talked about how some of this evidence of Officer Switzer's wrongdoing might have been pertinent information that could have assisted the defense attorney in developing potential arguments and case strategy, uh, including consideration of whether or not to call Switzer as a witness himself. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because the only reason that the defense might want to call the officer, since in general his, his testimony would help convict the defense, the only reason that they might want to call the officer would be to try and get before the jury the information that would impeach the officer's credibility. They wouldn't be putting it out there to impeach the officer's credibility if they were calling the officer as a witness on their own behalf, because they would, they're relying on the officer's credibility. So the only other reason that they might want to do it is basically just to get before the jury the fact that this officer had engaged in this misconduct. But it's pretty clear from the cases that you can't do that. You don't, you can certainly impeach your own witness. I mean, prosecutors, defense attorneys do it all the time. But you can't just call a witness in order to bring in otherwise inadmissible evidence under the guise of impeaching the witness. So it really just seems to me that the Court of Appeal did not do an appropriate analysis of what or why this evidence is favorable evidence. And that's why the dicta is so disturbing, at least to me. Sure, I, I agree with you. There's a long line of cases that talk about it cannot impeach a witness on a collateral matter. Uh, that's established in California published cases and federal published cases. Um, my concern, even with the Lewis Court's suggestion that this was exculpatory evidence because it would have facilitated pretrial investigation on the part of defense counsel, is that defendant and his attorney had two or three months after trial to come up with some type of theory as to how this would have been admissible and relevant, and they failed miserably when they tried to do so at the motion for new trial. 
the trial court in her ruling said that the defendant's theory of admissibility was wrong, that this evidence wouldn't have been admissible. And I think it's nothing but pure speculation on the part of the Lewis court to say that there was a discovery violation under such circumstances. You know, it goes without saying that, as prosecutors, we should err on the side of disclosure and do everything we can to preserve the appearance of fairness. It seems to me that you were faced with a classic situation that arises whenever an officer is being investigated for a crime and there are potential witnesses in the case. I mean, how do you avoid running afoul of statutory or ethical obligation to disclose exculpatory evidence when the officer being investigated is a witness in an unrelated pending case without either potentially jeopardizing the investigation against the officer or prematurely and potentially tainting an officer's reputation by revealing information about the officer where further investigation may turn out that this accusation is unfounded or letting a defendant clearly guilty of a crime avoid punishment. I think one reasonable and ethical solution is to do exactly what you did, which is avoid calling the officer in the case. There is one other aspect of the opinion which your office was criticized, which you sort of hinted at earlier, which was that the court of appeal took you folks to task for gamesmanship in failing to reveal your final witness list until the first day of trial. And they said by waiting until the last minute to convey the information, you denied the defendant an opportunity to respond to the officer being placed under investigation. Do you feel there's any merit to this criticism? No. Again, the court of appeal completely missed because it wasn't raised by the parties below, by competent counsel at the trial court level or the appellate court level, that we had in fact complied with 1054.1 when we provided the defense with Officer Switzer's name and address two years before trial. There's nothing in the criminal discovery statute that imposes an obligation upon the defense or the prosecution to narrow down the witness list. And when they get close to trial, when they get in the middle of the trial and they decide not to call a particular witness, I guess if you come back to the definition of exculpatory, because I have a difficulty moving off this point, Jeff, you know, the Lewis court cited this appellate opinion by the Kennedy court and they talk about at its broadest, exculpatory means clearing or tending to clear from alleged fault or guilt. In my mind, there was none of this evidence relating to Officer Switzer met that definition once we made the decision not to call Officer Switzer as our own witness at trial. The other thing that's a little bit strange is the way they interpreted section 1054.1 is an obligation to turn over a witness list 30 days before trial. Well, that's actually not what it says in the statute. It says we have to give the defense the names of our witnesses and the addresses of these witnesses who we reasonably anticipate calling for trial. But it really says nothing about a witness list per se. And as we just indicated, you did provide the name of witnesses at the time when we reasonably anticipated calling them. And that was well before trial. And here, you actually had a good reason for not turning them over because it wouldn't jeopardize the investigation. So in any event, not to be a dead horse, but there is some real problems with at least the dicta aspect of this opinion. And let's hope that eventually the publication will follow. In the meantime, Doug, I just want to thank you very much for coming down to Santa Clara and giving us 
your insights into the case of people versus agents. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you.